Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. Well, uh, the uh, the CPJ and Time magazine did a list of the 10 most threatened journalists in the world, and I'm one of them. Today I'm chatting to Rana Ayub, global opinions writer at the Washington Post. Rana is also the author of Gujarat Files, Anatomy of a Cover-Up. She reports on religious violence, insurgency, and extrajudicial killings by the state in India. Now to say she is brave would be quite the understatement. Rana, thank you so much for for being on my podcast. Pleasure, pleasure, Shauna, to be on your podcast. Yeah, it's lovely to to finally put a, a face to the name and kind of meet in person. Um, you're obviously in Mumbai at the moment, Rana. That's right. I'm in a very, very humid Mumbai right now and we're just waiting for the rains to strike in. Right. Slightly different to hear it's a scorcher out there today. But listen, Rana, you're, you've had... I mean, we're just discussed that we're, we're, we're of similar age and you have achieved so much. I mean, your stories have been huge over the years. Do you want to kind of tell our audience a little bit about how you became a journalist? Well, uh, that's a long story, actually. I, you know, I'm somebody who could have never been a journalist because I was an, I was an introvert. So I was born with a, with, I was born a cripple. I was born with a polio, with a left hand and right leg. And, you know, so I was literally the kind of ch- child who your friends and your and your relatives would be quite sympathetic towards. Then, I think around the age of 19, I went to Gujarat, uh, which is the province of um, Narendra Modi, who is now the Prime Minister of India. This was the time when one of the worst carnages in, in the recent history of India, the one of the worst anti-Muslim carnage, uh, took place. It was 2002. And I went there as a relief worker. And about 1,000 Muslims were slaughtered around in the span of three days. So I went there around doing my relief work and um, I think it really struck the kind of injustice that was that was around me, that the fact that a thousand people had been killed overnight and uh, the people who had killed them and the, uh, the leaders who had given the orders were, were sitting in positions of power. And I went to relief camps and there were pregnant women and, you know, those who were, you know, slaughtered, whose families were slaughtered. And they were all sitting there and I wanted to do something. And it just, it was infuriating because I felt, I felt very helpless. And I guess that was one of the, that was perhaps the time that I thought that, yes, this is perhaps the only thing I can do is to raise a voice and to speak for these people is to do my journalism. And that's when I decided to be a journalist. It took me a while. You know, I joined a journalism institute, uh, a journalism course uh, in Mumbai. And I wasn't really like the most brightest of children around. I was so I was so um, shy that I am such an introvert that I went into a girls' school, a girls' college, a girls' degree college, a girls' postgrad institute. You would never imagine me to be a journalist, and I just that things happened, things started rolling, and um, I remember in my um, second television job, I was made a part of the special investigations team, and that's mm. when I became a, a hardcore investigative journalist. So I think it's really worth mentioning that you are a Muslim yourself, um, yes. Rana, and that's why you know you were you know you when you went to Gujarat back in in two thousand and two you were you know it was Muslims that were being slaughtered that's and right. I mean some of the stories that came out back then were just horrific. I mean 
I've read, and I think these have been verified, you know, pregnant women's babies being ripped out and murdered. That's you know, it was that awful. And that's where, you know, you're, you're saying that's where you're, you decided, that's when you decided um, you needed to become a journalist. Um, can I take you back slightly further? Um, I, I, I read that, I think at the age of nine, um, did you and your family, did you have to flee Mumbai because you're Muslims? Yes. So I had a difficult childhood. When I was nine, we were living in Sahar, which is a very cosmopolitan space. We were like perhaps the only Muslim family living in a huge society of more than a thousand people. And uh, my father was known as Master G, basically, which is a term for teacher. And he was a revered figure. He was a revered figure by even the right wing guys who had their offices close by. And, you know, the temple, um, the temple services would, you know, would initiate from our household. So we never, I never really identified myself as a Muslim till on the 6th December, 2000, uh, 6th December, 1992, when uh, a Sikh guy, a, a Sikh guy who was our neighbor, Mr. Bagga, he came to our house, he banged the door, he was like really, he was very anxious. And uh, he looked at my dad and said, the girls need to be, the girls need to be taken away. And my dad said, what happened? They said, the rioters are coming with swords and they're coming for the girls. And, uh, and, and uh, my father was, I remember he was very anxious and my, he used the word rape, I remember. And, and my sister, my mom just, just took me and my sister aside. And uh, at that point, my father said, we have to get, let the girls go. And my mom said, we have never let them go by their own. I mean, it's, we can't, I mean, I, and somehow my dad persuaded my mom in that, in that moment. And me and my sister, we sat on his bike. So Mr. Baga was driving the, you know, riding the bike. So we sat on behind him and we, we went to stay uh, in the house of a Sikh family for months. We took refuge. And uh, I remember when the neighbors of that Sikh family where we took refuge would come in and they'd pop by and they would ask, who are these girls? And they would say, oh, they're refugees. They're Muslims from the neighborhood. And that's the first time, you know, the word Muslim actually stuck to me because that's the first time I was given a religious identity. Yeah, and I yeah, and that's so important then because uh, because of the work that you went on to do. So it feels like you've kind of always been living on the sectarian lines of India, and that I've has inspired. It. I have lived. Yeah, it. you yes. have lived it, and and that's what's inspired your work by the sense of it. So I mean, big big question um, for you, Rana. Is there a moment in your work, one particular story that you can really step back and say, "Gosh, you know, I really achieved something here." I'm 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 hoping you'll give me the answer that I'm. <laughs> I, I've just read your amazing book, um, Gujarat Files, Anatomy of a Cover-Up. Right. Um, everybody should read it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it really is wonderful investigative reporting. And the risks, you know, you took were, you know, slightly insane, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I think so. My, my, one of the biggest challenges and the most challenging story was the one that also, uh, is, 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 that also works around the book is the arrest of Amit Shah, the man who is now the Home Minister of India, the second in command. Um, who's the most powerful man in the country right now. In 2010, uh, he was the junior minister of state in Gujarat, where the, where the riots took place and when the extrajudicial murder of Muslims took place. So I sent him, my investigation sent him behind bars. Um, it was a huge, it was a huge moment because I, I was, I was what, 26 then. And, you know, I, you know, we, we always do stories, but you never expect people to step down from office or them being incarcerated. You do your job as journalists. So I got hold of his call records and official documents, which nailed his uh, which nailed his uh, role in 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 the murder of um, of a man and a woman, uh, a couple, um, and the woman was raped, sedated, murdered, burnt alive, and thrown in a river. 
uh, and she was also a Muslim, and she had she had just come from the hospital because she had she was getting the infertility checks done, and she was killed. And then, of course, I linked him to the to the Home Minister. And the day he was arrested, my editor, I remember back then, sent me a message that some stories do yield results. And I was looking at the television screens, and the television screens were reading my stories verbatim. And the biggest television channels, and they were all outside saying, Tehelka expose nails Amit Shah. That's, I was working with Tehelka. I think that was one of the biggest moments of my life. So go, go back to how you actually were able to expose Mr. Shah. So you spent... Eight months, I think it was, um, undercover. You posed as a as a filmmaker um, right. from the American Film Institute. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And, you know, the huge risks that you were taking, Rana? You know, right after I got Amit Shah arrested, I was, uh, I told my editor that we have just, we, have, we are just skimming through the surface. There is a lot more that needs to be uncovered. And he said, what do you have in mind? I said, I think I want to do, I want to go undercover. He looks at me, it's like this 26-year-old girl. Does she really think she, what she, what she, what she think she's talking about? Because the organization where I was working, the Helka, was infamous for its undercover operations, for its sting operations. So I said, no, I think I need some sting cameras. He said, what do you, what will you do? I said, leave that to me. And he left it to me. And uh, I got, I got cameras stitched on my tunic uh, in my diary, in my keychain. And I don't even remember the equipments, like the pen, the earring. There were so many of them. And I I became this girl called Hindu, Hindu nationalist girl called Methli Tyagi, whose father was a Hindu nationalist. She studied in America. She she believed that Muslims should live as second-class citizens. And she was a student at the American Film Institute Conservatory because a friend of mine was then studying at the American Film Institute Conservatory. She had mentioned this in passing. So I managed to get a card made, I got a fake passport, lenses, change my look, straighten my hair, uh, completely did a overhaul, I mean, overhauled completely in the way I dressed, you know, it was quite very chic and I really liked the journalist that I was. And uh, I went undercover with a fake American accent, very fake American accent. And I had a, we had a French intern at work, so he became my assistant director. And so armed with a white guy, you know, which kind of validates your own existence when you are a you know, foreign filmmaker. So I think armed with him for a company, I entered Gujarat. I befriended some of the most, uh, you know, most influential people in the films and um, in the films and political circles. I, we, got, we, we got ourselves entrenched in the circuit for the next two months. And then we became like the most famous people in Gujarat, me and Mike. And then uh, we familiarized ourselves with the, with the cops, with the bureaucrats, and then we became a part of their family. And then uh, across about six months, from the home secretary to the home minister to the, to the commissioner of police, we had done a sting operation on almost everybody who made the most damning confessions about the role of the prime minister and his second-in-command, Amit Shah. And they spilled the beans in a span of six months. And these would include conversations that, you know, each time I would switch on the camera, each time they would say, see something relevant, I would switch on the camera. And these were people who, when inquired by the commissions of inquiry, would say, oh, we don't remember. But in front of me, they're talking like a parrot. So it's like I just recorded all of it. And it was damning. I remember I wrote a mail to my editor that I've got this. And he said, this is going to be huge. You don't realize this. And of course, it never got published. <laughs> so Rana, I mean, did you, during your sting undercover operation, did you ever meet the current prime minister, Mr. Modi? I did. He was the last person. I mean, I wanted him to be the last person that I met, that in case I messed up, in, I, in, in, in case things didn't go as planned, you know, that would be our last thing to do. And uh, so the last thing, last person that I met was Mr. Modi. And my colleague, Mike, 
who was a French guy. He was really nervous. Yes, I said, just just act here, just just act normal. And I remember when we were sitting in the living room, the waiting room. I I told him, I briefed him accordingly. I said, we are not supposed to talk work. We are supposed to be the filmmakers at all times until we reach Delhi. We're not supposed to say anything. So we were talking about films and stuff. And Mr. Modi calls us inside and says, and and Mike enters and says, "Sir, you're so popular that you have picture. We have pictures of you in the auto rickshaw all over Gujarat. You're such a popular guy." And Mr. Modi started blushing and it's like, "Oh my God, I'm so popular even with French guys." So he had done the homework, and I introduced myself. So I introduced myself in, and Mr. Modi had already kind of he had a book on of by on Barack Obama on his table. So he looks at me and says, "Metally, someday I want to be like this guy." So I mean. I mean, he was a provincial minister, and none of us would have thought that he would one day be lead the country. So he had a book on Barack Obama, and he, and we, he spoke to us about America and India. So he said, "Why are you making the film?" I said, "Sir, we, you have a huge audience, an Indian American audience, the diaspora in America, which is Gujarati, and I want them to know the good work that you are doing, and that you are the global leader the world needs." So basically, I I kind of made it look like I was the person that he needed, and he. Uh, this was also the time that Mr. Modi was looking to get to establish his image as this leader because America had denied had uh, denied him visa for his role in the 2002 genocide. So it America had denied him visa. He wanted this acceptability, and and it felt like my offer opened the doors for him. So he said, you know, I'm. So he he took me around, showed all the books written on him, and he said, you know, you should, uh, you should come and do lunch with me the following week, and. Uh, I went back and my editors said um, my editors were really excited. I showed them the footage of me talking to Mr. Modi under on camera, and then he said, "My editors said you can't do this." I said, "What do you?" I said, "I said, listen, what do you mean?" He said, "Listen, you have gone, you have got all the big guys, but this is too big." I said, "What? How do you? How do you?" I said, "I mean, just, I just, it just broke my heart." He said, "Promises, Rana, that you're not going to do that." So that was the last meeting I ever had, and then I remember I get, got to the meeting. Um, I was getting calls from Mr. Modi's. Guy on my phone that you know we have to plan the lunch next. So I remember I told him that somebody in my house, um, you know, a relative passed away, and there was. So uh, he said, "Okay, sure, let me know and we can plan." And I just chip cut the SIM card in two pieces through the phone. Wow! And oh my God! So so so, Rana, the, the story never got published in Telica, but you went on to self-publish your story book. Never. So after this, when they asked me to publish, so I gave them the transcripts uh, of my conversation to the help of the undercover operation and. Uh, and uh, they took about a week or two and then they would stop you know, you just, they just stopped communicating with me and finally i just called tarun who was my editor and i said why are you why are you guys sitting on this? this is a big investigation and then one of my editors wrote back to me saying you know we found holes in your investigation and flaws some loose ends i said well if there are loose ends so let me fix them let me go back to gujarat and get me this is no i think you did a great job but let's leave it at this i said i was not a guinea pig that you sent for an investigation and now you're saying just kill this so of course of course there were many deliberations and i knew that the story could not be published so i went shopping with various editors i shopped my story around and you know, spoke to almost every editor in the country every publication and they all said it's a damning story but we can't publish it people are too scared i guess people, people are too scared yeah. and finally i had a book contract and the publishers eased out of the contract in 2014 when they realized modi is going to be the prime minister i had another contract in 2015 which which the publishers again eased out and finally i in 2016 i self published this which is this investigation in the form of a book my god your bravery is just it's astonishing here because i'm guessing it's you know i'm guessing you get a lot of flack and you probably receive a lot of trolling online and uh, do you ever do you ever feel like your life is in danger 
Well, uh, the uh, the CPJ and Time magazine did a list of the ten most threatened journalists in the world, and I'm one of them. So I don't know what does how does one feel uh, being a part of that list. But yes, I mean I've seen perhaps the worst. I've seen being doxxed, being you know given um, getting threats and rapes and murder threats. Um, in 2017, my uh, my image was morphed on a porn video, and that that video was circulated all over. So. I've seen the worst of it, and um, a colleague of mine, Gauri Lankesh, she was killed in, in, in three years ago. And that same week, we were supposed to publish Gujarat files, which she had translated in the regional language. Um, so it's like it's like I've seen it from close quarters, and you, you know, you I've gone on a television studio in a news studio, and in the middle of a television debate, I get a message on my phone saying, "Yeah, we you're you're on NDTV. We see you. We're downstairs." So it's like it's it's as close. Is as close, but then at after a point of time, you get you start living with it, and you are like you you the, which really means that the kind of investigation that you're doing, the work that you're doing, has, is is resonating with people, and that your work is important, and which is why people are scared and sitting a raw nerve somewhere. So you also live with the satisfaction that you have done something which is you know which is which is impacting people. Exactly. So you're you're obviously doing something right if you're annoying that many people. Um, oh, right. I'm very sorry to hear that. And I, I, I mean, you're saying all of that, um, Rana, with a smile, which is, um, you know, <laughs> it's 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 really scary to hear that. And you know, I guess for you know, being a woman in India can be tricky. Never mind being a, a Muslim woman who has done you know significant reporting against the people who are in power. I mean, it it is something quite spectacular. Next question, Rana. Um, is there a moment? that you could pick out that's slightly crazy. I feel like you might have quite a few of them, um, but one that you can pinpoint um, that, that that you'd like to tell us about. Recently, when Dexter Fulkins of New Yorker was uh, was in India, I, I so we had to go to Kashmir. So he, I said, and foreign journalists were not allowed. Foreigners were not allowed. And we were taking flights, which were only, so we took, he's like, how are we doing this? I said, listen, I'm going to take you to Kashmir. I'm going to smuggle you in. But you promised me you're not going to open your mouth. He said, "Okay, how are you doing doing this?" He, I made him wear a, a, a kurta pajama with 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 these with these scarf, with these scarves around him, around his neck, and he's like he's a very white guy. And luckily, he has his goldenish hair, which which makes him look slightly Kashmiri. So I made him wear his glasses, and I said, "Keep coughing when you go to the airport, so nobody sees your face, and just shut up." So we took the five a.m. flight, and we were the only people except for two other people at the back who were on the flight to Kashmir. And uh, I, I covered myself in a hijab. I wore glasses. And it was like it, it, the flight landed at 6.30 in the morning. So we put our stuff. And I'm like, okay, Dexter, here's the thing. There are CRPF guys standing outside. We just have to we have to walk past as if you are really sick and I'm escorting you. And we have to get out, sit in the cab and just leave. He said, okay. And he starts coughing. Dexter starts coughing. And I'm like, yeah, don't overdo it. <laughs> we are walking towards exit. And I see these CRPF guys. And I'm like, okay. There we go, there we go. We have this trolley and, and Dexter keeps doing this and we and we step out and we get a we get in we get a taxi and he says, Phew, and this is Dexter, not few yet. And then we go to we are reporting the story, we go to a hospital. I'm I'm walking in, Dexter's walking right behind me, and this this cop, the intelligence official, comes to me and says, Are you Rana Ayub? And Dexter, who's right behind me, just runs. Okay. He runs and we okay, and Kashmir in and that point of Kashmir, there was no telephone, there was no internet, there was no communication at all. So Dexter is a foreigner in Kashmir who has no communication with me. So these guys grilled me for an hour. I come out and I'm like, what the hell is Dexter? I finally he in the meanwhile, Dexter has gone and hidden in the parking area. So after one hour, I find Dexter <laughs> in the parking area. And so we had like the craziest stories and then getting out of Kashmir and then for him. 
for him to publish that we snooped, we sneaked into Kashmir. So a lot of um, a lot of politicians tweeted that Rana Ayub should be arrested for smuggling a foreign correspondent. But it was interesting as hell. <laughs> so it, this is really quite funny because you, you, he sounds like such a daredevil, and you're saying you know you grew up as quite an introvert. It definitely doesn't sound like you're an introvert, especially when you're telling a foreign, you know, a Western journalist to to not talk. I mean, that's probably totally counterintuitive to, to poor Dexter, um, who's a, that article in in the New Yorker is is really it's something else, isn't it? It, it really it is. gives you a, a great background um, about India and and Kashmir. I think um, you know you, when you were going up there, um, Rana, the way. I understand it is Article 307 was was being repealed, and that would mean that Kashmir would lose its autonomy autonomy as a as a Muslim state. Um, you know, so things are really really tricky. Um, will you? I mean, do you plan to go back there? Have you any? Or you're probably banned. I'm guessing. <laughs> I am not sure, but I I remember, I remember I remember when I went there for the third time. A Kashmiri journalist came to me and said, "We almost had orders from Kashmir." Uh, to like the cops had orders to arrest you and then Delhi intervened the central the center intervened saying she cannot be arrested because if she's arrested then it sends the international message because I am I think now I have an international profile I write for the Washington Post and the global opinions writer so this journalist said um, so I tweeted about what's happening in Kashmir and there were not many journalists there were journalists from the BBC and the Washington Post and New York Times who were just stationed in Delhi who were not allowed to go in and they were sending their local reporters to Kashmir and I was tweeting, and because I have a voice, I was tweeting about the human rights violation in Kashmir when the special status was revoked. And the, 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 the day the special status was revoked, I was in New York. And I remember CPJ and IWMF colleagues said, please don't go back. And I said, I'm sorry, but Kashmir is my... It's, I have to go there because the story is that Indian journalists, a state-sponsored and state-enabled and state-supported journalists were saying, oh, all is normal in Kashmir. They'd go outside the lakes and say, here, we, we, have, we have Dal Lake and there are boats and people and tourists and there was nothing. So when I report, went and reported about the human rights violation in Kashmir, the arrest of children and teenagers, I think there was a huge backlash by, by, government, uh, by government officials and they asked for my arrest. So yes, I think uh, what's happening in Kashmir is a human rights violation and I do intend to go back. But uh, especially to cover the pandemic, uh, you know, as soon as we have flights operating, because that's one area that, that India chooses to forget all the time. You know, it's like it's like we like Kashmiri land, but we not, do not want Kashmiri people. So do you, is there a sense, Rana, that since Modi has come to power, that media in India has been bullied, I guess, into just covering a more nationalist agenda, at least portraying a picture that all is well in India when in fact press freedom is certainly being quashed. You know, Muslims are on the fringes and and, and that's why you feel the need to do such reporting. But do you sense that, you know, the, the press is really being being bullied here? I think I think if you come to India at any given point of time, and if I were to make you, if, if you, you you were to just watch the Indian news channels, you'd be like, "What the hell is the world talking about? It's all hunky dory here. Like everybody is having a great time. There's no discrimination, and that's what and it speaks volumes of the state of Indian news media. I think it has it has been bending over backwards to accommodate Mr. Modi's majoritarian views. It has it has procrastinated. It has prostrated even before it was asked to bend. Uh, the way they are self-censoring this themselves, the way they are, uh, the way they are demonizing the Muslim community. Uh, I remember when the pandemic began, one of India's leading news channels, India Today, had a graphic of the virus with a Muslim skull cap on top of it, saying Muslims were responsible for spreading the virus in India, and the Islamophobic oh stories that were on news channels in India 
and when uh, which led to one of the union uh, the union minister for minority affairs saying that muslims are talibanizing the virus in india so that's the level of that's the level of majoritarianism and that is being enabled and emboldened by our media there are voices there is a backlash against the backlash the media backlash there are there are there are organizations like print and wire and some television channels but there are exceptions and these independent voices which are speaking against the regime have been targeted time and again and journalists are attacked and journalists are threatened online so the ones who are speaking are being silenced and the others uh, are have been you know are being self censoring themselves gosh it's 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 so disconcerting to hear that um and obviously you're now you, you're a columnist at the Washington Post i mean how does it feel you know you have a colleague who was murdered by the saudis um yeah you know when when you're you're saying all this rana it you know i can't help but yeah you know how do you feel even knowing that i was i joined washington post within months of jamal khashoggi being murdered and i remember i went to the washington post office and i met the editor and you know when i when i returned i, I told this to a friend so he said that's the best place and i said why do you say that he said you know they they covered so much about jamal khashoggi's death after he was killed so i said hang on i you know this i said just no actually you know, for a journalist like you it's the best place but i'm really proud of being being associated with washington post in in, a, in an, an organization that has really stood by its journalists you know it, it it's an honor that jamal khashoggi was also the global opinions writer and i'm taking, I'm, i'm in the same place sometimes i feel like i've taken his place because you know right after he died i joined the washington post and right after he was killed and i think i have I have a bigger responsibility of speaking the truth because what's happening in saudi and the way jamal was silenced was because of his criticism of the saudi regime of course i trust my regime to not do the same but given the way things are given the way the government has been silencing voices i did not be far fetched to compare them and their treatment of journalists wow well Rana I know you have to go. Um so thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. It's extraordinary to hear about your career. Um and good luck with the rest of your work. It's obviously so so important. Thank you so much. Thank you so much Shana. It was great talking to you. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at @shona on Twitter or @shonakaner on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 